Welcome to the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam, and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the birders that pursue them. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Shrobsky Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser bird logging app, Spot, Plot, Play a Part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously, where to find amazing birds. Head on over to our website, www.thebirdinglife.com, and be sure to sign up to our newsletter on the site so you do not miss out on any of the exciting things that are coming up. Be sure to follow this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on, and please take some time to rate and comment on it. This is episode 26, and in this episode, I chat to Dr. Melissa Howes-Whitecross from BirdLife South Africa. She tells us all about the recent project that she was involved in to tag two southern banded snake eagles with trackers. She lets us know all about the special species and the conservation challenges around them, how the project was planned and executed, as well as future plans around the project. Melissa is an amazing person with a wealth of knowledge. So let's dig into today's episode. Okay, Melissa, I want to welcome you to the podcast. It's great. Second time on the podcast. Andrew DeBlock's not the only one who's had a second time, so you're on for the second time. Yeah, thanks so much, Adam. It's great to be back on The Birding Life, and we're always happy to chat with you guys. And I see your podcast is growing and getting into all sorts of things, so it's wonderful to see how your platform's developing. Oh, thanks, Melissa. It's great having you guys on the show. And last time we had a chat about Vakastrum, we chatting about a bird that's a little bit closer to home today. But before we chat about the special bird we're going to chat about today, I saw that you and Caroline went away last week, took advantage of the easing of the lockdown rules, and you went to the mountains on the border of South Africa and Lesotho. Um, maybe just let us know where you stayed and what sort of special birds you saw. It's always nice to give the birders that listen some really cool locations to find some birds. So, yeah, tell us about the weekend away. Absolutely. Yeah, we took the, as you say, took advantage of the easing lockdown rules and we headed off to a little place called the Old Mill Drift Guest Farm. And uh, their details are very easy to find on social media, but a wonderful little guest farm tucked away right on the border of Lesotho and South Africa. You can literally walk into the river and you're technically standing in Lesotho soil if you go to the far bank. Um, they're a live farm with uh, horses and other animals that they breed. Um, but they're also a pet-friendly farm. So we took our two dogs and did a bit of camping, um, beautiful hiking trails all around. We were lucky enough to come across an active black stork nest. And one of the species that I've been working on as part of my work at BirdLife is the black stork. So I was extremely excited to be able to hike up and have a look and see three chicks on the nest. And it's just really nice winter grassland birding. We had southern bald ibis knocking around, um, some beautiful... Uh, bobos all around the campsite and lovely little seed eaters knocking around obviously all still in their drab winter plumage so you struggle to separate out the bishops and things but yeah just a beautiful spot and I'd highly recommend it if anyone is looking particularly for pet friendly accommodation and your pets can handle a bit of livestock knocking around it's well worth a visit. And in terms of people going there in summer do you think there'll be um, possibly some special species that could show up? Certainly, yes. Um, the grasslands on top of the, the sort of mountains that the farm backs up onto were looking really, really nice. 
Um, I wouldn't be surprised if an adventurous uh, hiker got up there and managed to connect with some interesting larks and uh, some good grassland pipits and all sorts of specials for those, those sort of high altitude, not quite high altitude grasses, but definitely good grassland birds. I think that there's definitely some good birding to be had there, but you do need a four by four to get in in summer. The roads are a little bit rough. So just a, a caveat on that front. I think, Melissa, on a very side note, talking about special birds, on the last episode, you spoke about your bogey bird, the grass owl. And I think next time you're on in KZN, we need to make sure that you get that bird. Um, yeah, awesome bird. But the date, Adam. It is a date. <laughs> well, we're not going to make promises because when you make promises, it never happens. So we're not going to make promises, but we'll definitely take you there and we will hold thumbs and hold whatever else we can hold just to just help you get that bird. I'm keen. I'm keen. Let's do it. <laughs> Something that some people might not know about you is just as much as you love birds, I, I actually I don't know if Mark wants to hear this, but maybe more than you even love birds, you love your two fur babies, your two dogs. I'll let you tell us a little bit about your dogs in a moment. Um, but, you know, one thing I've seen is that very oftentimes that when you go out birding and especially in the lockdown, I saw you guys at all those walks around and when you used to go around the neighborhood and do birding, you took the, the dog with you. Now, in my personal experience, dogs and birding don't always mix. We've got a dog here, and oh man, it's anything that that dog knows about birds is that the hottie does steal its food. Other than that, it's there's nothing. It's they, they don't mix well. So, you know, how, how does birding with dogs work for you guys? And you know, is it something that's is it possible or is it not possible? Tell us. Yeah, so my, my two fur babies, Roxy and Ruby, um, they're both rescues. Roxy's a border collie and Ruby is a border collie cross husky. Um, highly intelligent animals and they are very energetic. But uh, the good thing about that is it means that they get us out into the world, as you said, doing lots of walking and running. And uh, when we're out there, we're always looking for birds and you'd be amazed what you can run into on foot, even with dogs. Um, all sorts of really good birds around Delta Park, which is the park near our home. And uh, yeah, we've been lucky enough to take our dogs to some really far-flung places. Um, when we rescued Roxy, I was busy doing my PhD at Nailsflay Nature Reserve, and we got special permission um, to bring her with me. And so she pretty much operated on Nailsflay with me. Um, luckily, she's a shadow dog, so she never goes very far and doesn't get into much. But um, yeah, she, she would come out in the truck with us. She sits on the back seat with her head out the window and we do our birding thing. And um, we always make sure that we take them for a good walk before we go and do any drive-by birding. But uh, more recently, we've taken to a lot of hiking and taking them with us on hikes. And um, we've got nice long leads that they walk on if we want to keep them close or otherwise they sort of run up ahead of us, occasionally flushing some really interesting stuff, which obviously is always handy. Luckily, neither of them are major hunters, so they, they usually don't get into any trouble on that front. But I think if you manage your dogs well, you could, they can definitely be great birding buddies. And we absolutely love having our two with us. And uh, you'd be surprised what they pick up in the environment that we sometimes don't. So they definitely help alert you to, to a few of the more elusive species. But yeah, we're very lucky to have very well-behaved girls and we do a lot of training with them to keep them nice and exercised and not eating the house. And that way they're very good companions when you go out into the world and look for birds. It'd be really interesting to know what their life list sits on because I can imagine with yeah, the trip places they've been to, they might, be, they might have a higher life list than some of the people that listen to the show. <laughs> I should actually work it out to them. It could be quite interesting. <laughs> I'd like to get back to you on that one, Adam. 
So while we got you on the show today, we're going to chat about a very, very special bird, the Southern Bandit Snake Eagle. Now, the first time I saw this bird, um, it's one of those birds that I think just sticks. You know, birds are beautiful, but let's be honest, Melissa, I know you love birds. There are drab birds, but the Southern Bandit Snake Eagle is not one of those drab birds. It's a stunning beautiful bird the first time i saw it we were at imtanzini we went for imtanzini birding weekend we went right near where the raffia palm forest is and we remember coming around a corner on top of a pole there was a bird with sakamuzi boof there was a southern banded snake eagle that like memory is just etched in my brain beautiful stunning raptor and just on a funny story, the, the guy we had on our show last week, Kalen O'Kanna, he came from Canada and one of the birds he wanted to see was a Southern Bandit Snake Eagle. On the way into Tanzini, you know, took the um, turn off by Febreze, went along the railway lines, a beautiful Southern Bandit Snake Eagle right next to the road, we're getting photos. We go pick Kalen up. We think we're going to take him back and see it. Guess what? No bird. That's <laughs> just how birding works. That is how it works. <laughs> but Melissa, there's obviously people are, you know, raptors, I think a lot of birders love raptors, but a lot of people listening to the show listen from all over the world. And for those who have maybe never seen the stunning um, species, the stunning raptor, can you describe it? How would, how would somebody know that they're looking at a southern bandit snake? You tell us about this bird. How does it look? What is the plumage details like? Yeah, tell us all about this bird. Absolutely, Adam, and I agree with you there. I mean, they're first phantoms, they'll disappear on you in, a, in the blink of an eye, but when you do manage to connect with one, they are a breathtakingly striking bird. So they've got, um, they're quite a stocky raptor. They've got these gray, sort of slate gray heads that um, drop down into a bit of a gray bib on their chest. Their wings are slightly darker gray, and probably they're, they're best named feature is their belly, which is banded with these sort of brown gray feathers across the front of their chests. And they've got these big yellow feet, very, very um, stocky, thick legs that are heavily scaled. Um, and that alludes a bit to their, their name being the snake eagle. They do catch a lot of snakes and they need those very heavily scaled yellow legs to protect them from the snake bites. Their younger birds are a little bit different. Um, they're much more pale. So still having those, those dark wings, but their heads are sort of a pale cream color and they almost have a bit of a, a brown eye mask and an eyebrow. And I think um, when you look at these Southern bandits, they, they've got this very sort of determined look on their face because they've got these great feathered brows that sort of come up over their eyes. And uh, yeah, these beautiful yellow sears and yellow eyes, they really are quite a striking bird to behold. And then you also get the Western Bandit Snake Eagle. What is the difference between the two and how closely related are the two birds? Yeah, so the Western Bandits further north in Southern Africa, um, they're much more solid. Um, so the second year Southern Bandit Snake Eagles actually resemble Western Bandits quite a bit because in their plumage, the, the second year birds are completely solid. So their head down to their bellies is the same color. There's no banding or barring. And if you have a look at the Western Bandit Snake Eagle, that's very much a similar appearance to them. Um, so there's a big difference in the tail barring on their, the sort of underside of their tails. Um, and that's one of the good ways to distinguish the two of them, but generally fairly geographically distinct. So you usually don't have to worry too much about trying to separate them apart. Western bandits off to the western side of um, Southern Africa. And then of course our Southern bandits keeping to the more Eastern side. And then talking about distribution, how widely distributed are Southern bandits snake eagles and, and what, what are their numbers like globally and also in South Africa? What, are, what numbers are we looking at with these, with these birds? Yeah, so distribution-wise, they stretch all the way from sort of southern Somalia on the east coast of, of Africa, and they come down along that coastal belt um, all the way down to South Africa. 
the most southern pair we know of is down near Port Shepston, um, but the majority of their population is sort of from a Matakulu nature reserve just north of Durban upwards. Um, they used to occur right along the, the east coast of Africa, but obviously as we fragmented more and more of the coastal forest, which is what they need to live in, um, we've seen big declines. So unfortunately here in South Africa, we're looking at less than 50 mature individuals is the current estimate. And that's why these birds have been listed as critically endangered in South Africa. But globally, the estimate that was done in 2004, and is probably quite out of date at this point, is that there are between 607 to 2,000 birds. So that's quite a, a range and a bit of a thumb suck on the part of the IUCN, unfortunately. But what we're hoping to do in the next couple of years is to really try and get a much more scientifically robust estimate of exactly how many birds we have left in Africa as well as here in South Africa. So the BirdLife team is doing quite a bit of work looking into these population numbers and trying to figure out exactly what's going on with them in South Africa. And then before we, we chat it, just we, I noticed something really interesting. In the new Cecil um, field guide, they are actually listed as near threats. And so, you know, you explained why that is. I think it might cause a bit of confusion for some people to listen who might look in the, the guide and say, well, you're talking about this bird being critically endangered, but the Cecil field guide says near threats. And yeah, can you just explain the difference between the two? Yeah, for sure. So here in South Africa, we've got the Red Data Book for Birds, which was published in 2015 and sponsored by ESCOM. And in that book, it looks at the threat status of our birds in South Africa, Lesotho and Eswatini. So that's what we call a regional red list. And if we look at just the region of South Africa, Eswatini and Lesotho, the species does qualify as critically endangered because as I said, there's less than 50 mature individuals. But if we look at the more global rating, where we've got a much broader distribution and a lot more birds, um, currently based on the 2004 assessment, they are listed as near threatened. But obviously 2004 was quite a while ago and a lot has changed since then. So we are working with BirdLife International and the IUCN Red List teams to try and bring about a review of the current status of the Southern Banded Snake Eagle. Because we think given how few birds we do know of, there's a good chance that we'll need to uplist them to a higher threat category. But then with a lot of the, the birds around the world, there's pretty accurate um, numbers in terms of populations. And what, what makes it so difficult to, to track the population of the Southern Banded Snake Eagle? Yeah, so these birds are living in quite dense coastal forest. Um, they can be really, really difficult to find in those coastal forest areas. And because of the areas that they are distributed in along the sort of east coast of Africa, there's a lot of um, areas that people just don't really get to. So we're not 100% sure what the population status is in many of um, the areas within their main distribution throughout Africa. And it's quite difficult to get data out of some of our partner countries further north in Africa. So slowly but surely, as the birder populations are establishing themselves in more of Africa's countries, we're starting to get better handles on where the birds still are and how many are left but it's still taking us a bit of time to really get accurate count data for just how many individuals still remain. You can be forgiven for not knowing where Witterdrift is. It's a tiny village five kilometers inland from the upmarket holiday destination of Plattenberg Bay. What makes it special is its ecological diversity packed into a relatively small area. The Beto River runs through it, opening up into wetlands and finally flowing into the Kierbrums Lagoon and into the sea. Fainbos, Nasna Forest, reed beds and grassland make this corner of nature a home to more than 193 species of migrant and resident birds. 
This special area hosts the second Witterdrift Birding Festival from the 30th of October to the 1st of November. Activities over the three days include bird ringing along the banks of the Beto River, a bird count and guided bird watching with BirdLife Plet, as well as informative bird-related talks with great speakers. Over the weekend, the activities will give visitors the chance to see the stunning birds of the area, Nasna Taraka, Nasna Warbler, Narina Trogan, Karupunia, Cape Longclaw, and Nasna Woodpecker are just some of the highlights. The cost is only 375 Rand for the weekend, and there's a wide range of top quality accommodation at special festival rates. Go to www.vitadriftway.com for more information on how to book and check out their Facebook page, Vitadrift Way. All the links we posted in the comments section of this podcast. You touched on earlier about they obviously eat snakes, but what is their you know what does their diet consist of besides but besides snakes? Yeah, so they eat um, opportunistically. They'll eat almost anything from rodents to lizards, frogs, um, but definitely snakes probably make up a good eighty percent of their diet. At least that's what some of the the literature indicates. We haven't been able to do many um, dietary studies on these birds because, as I said, they're so difficult to try and keep up with and. It's also really difficult to try and find nests where you could do sort of food delivery monitoring and that sort of thing. It's one of the things we're hoping to do going forward. But um, Hugh Chittenden managed to find a nest many, many years ago and did some monitoring and found that the majority of the snakes that were being brought back in were spotted bush snakes and night adders. And on my most recent trip down to Umtanzini um, last month, while I was watching one of the, the male southern banded snake eagles that we've been working on, um, he got, got flushed out of a, a palm tree by a palm nut vulture. And it, just on his flush um, flight, he grabbed a spotted bush snake out the top of a canopy and came back and started eating it. So they really are good at spotting snakes, unlike we humans. And I know my hoping friends listening will share my frustration at trying to find snakes. Southern banders have an amazing um, adaptation to be able to spot snakes and really capture them in the canopy. And those of you who've walked around KZN and Zululand will know there's no shortage of um, snakes in those forests. So they've got a good food supply. You know, just, just something interesting. Um, are they able to eat venomous snakes? Yes, absolutely. Um, so night adders we know are quite venomous um, and they're very good at, at taking the heads off of the venomous snakes and then eating the rest of the body. Um, sadly, what the chick that Hugh was monitoring, um, the parents were obviously young and inexperienced and didn't have a, a fully dead snake when they brought it into the chick on the nest and the night adder actually bit the chick, which ended up turning into a sort of rotting wound and that chick sadly didn't make it. Um, so there is risk with eating a diet of snakes and yeah, they definitely do go for the venomous ones occasionally. So they don't actually consume the venom, they actually remove the head where, where, the, where, the, where, where the venom would be? Yes. Oh, amazing, amazing birds. It's a, you know, when you, you start to, you know, ask and, and, and discover birds, they're just super amazing, super awesome. So what are the major threats to Southern Banded Snake Eagles? As with all of our, our big birds of prey and biodiversity in general, habitat loss is definitely number one as, in terms of their threats. Um, we've seen major um, conversion of a lot of habitats, um, particularly through that Indian Ocean coastal belt biome. And so we've got um, plantations being established where there used to be coastal forest. We've got a lot of sugarcane being developed and just a lot of human settlement. And these birds really require intact coastal forests with adjacent grasslands to be able to survive. And so with this conversion of all these different um, sort of 
matrices of coastal forest and grassland through northern KwaZulu-Natal, the area where these birds are able to operate has begun to shrink a lot. Luckily, we are seeing them adapting to some of these habitats. So we have seen some use of the plantation network for some of these birds, um, but definitely it's not as ideal a habitat as a, um, as a sort of more natural coastal forest would be. We've also seen um, threats from electrocution. So we know of four individuals that were fatally electrocuted um, thanks to the ESCOM EWT strategic partnership. We were lucky enough to do a project with ESCOM last year where we overlaid their transformer box network with very fine scale habitat suitability models. And we rated all the different transformer boxes in terms of their threat to um, Southern banded snake eagles. And ESCOM came to the party and within nine months of us showing them the data had retrofitted 62 very, very high risk transformer boxes with electrocution mitigation devices that have now helped to prevent future electrocutions of the birds on these structures. And we're hoping to start a camera trapping project in the upcoming year with ESCOM, where we're gonna be fitting camera traps to transformer boxes to try and watch different wildlife interactions with these structures and come up with good ways to mitigate them. But Melissa, how, how, do, how do you get that, that balance between, obviously a lot of people listening to this might listen and say, oh, you know, economic growth is important and population growth is happening where there's a need for housing. Um, some people would even argue the need for things like plantations and, you know, food is also important in terms of farms and that type of thing. How do you, how do you get that balance between, you know, looking after the environment and also taking care of the needs that man has? It's a great question, Adam, and I think it's it's something that the conservation community has been grappling with. Historically, conservationists have always been seen as these greenies who don't want any development and want to sort of put a fence around everything and keep people out. More and more, as a conservation community, we're realizing people are here, we're not going anywhere, and we are very much part of the ecosystem. And we need to stop seeing people and our development needs as a separate thing from protecting the, the environment and keeping biodiversity around us. What we have to do is merge those two sort of thought processes and bring people back into nature and get people to value nature around them. There are so many great solutions for us as a, a society and as humanity to bring nature-based solutions into everything that we do and to develop green infrastructure and live harmoniously with nature in a sustainable way. So it's finding that balance and we know we've lost a lot of habitat already, but there are ways to restore different tracts of land and bring it back into a more natural land use. There's ways to manage different um, plantations that it still allows for biodiversity to be present. So I think we've, we've got to really work hard as the conservation community to bring this kind of notion of people being a, a separate thing that we need to kind of fight against to bring people to become a part of the solution. And it is a difficult and tricky balance. And absolutely, we need to have cordoned off pristine natural areas 100%. But I think there is a lot to be said for what they now call other effective area-based conservation measures. So that's taking properties that have a secondary conservation use to whatever use they're currently being used for. So say a farm that's grazing cattle, if you graze it in, a, in the right way, it can also be a safe haven for Rudd's lark or secretary birds or other amazing grassland species. So it's finding those secondary conservation benefits and working with landowners to bring about that balance where we can still achieve our economic needs and develop, but keep biodiversity around and keep the planet healthy and intact. I think it's something that BirdLife um, South Africa does really well. Um, you know, a lot of, and like you said, a lot of environmental organizations is almost 
this almost militant thing against all this stuff. And the reality of living, especially in South Africa, the reality is the the economic hardship is before us all the times. And if we, you know, there has to be that balance. And it's it's not always it's not always easy. But it's great that you guys are having the right conversations. And yeah, I just love the work you guys are doing. So one of the projects that you spoke, you alluded to earlier last month, you um, went down to, I think it was down to Mzini area. I'm not sure the exact area, you can clarify the area. But BirdLife South Africa, you guys tagged two Southern Bandit snake eagles with tracking devices. So I'm always interested to know, how was firstly, how was the project identified? And how did the preparation look like? Not just on the day, but how did the preparation process look like before the devices were even attached? For sure, yeah. So we went down to to Mtanzini in early August. Really, the need for tracking these birds is that, as it's such an elusive species, it's really difficult to come up with good, scientifically robust conservation strategies. And at BirdLife, we really do pride ourselves on using science to drive our conservation initiatives. There's no point in trying to design a conservation strategy if you haven't got good science to work on um, and make sure that you really understand the needs of the species. So we know where southern bandits occur and we've got lots of good citizen science sightings, but when those birds fly into the forest or they disappear into a plantation, we don't actually know what they're getting up to or how they're using their environment. So as we mentioned earlier, one of their big threats is this sort of habitat transformation issue and trying to figure out how these birds are navigating this new matrix of habitats that they need to work in. So for the listeners who haven't been to Imsenzini before, it's sort of a mix of peri-urban suburbs with a nature reserve along the, the sort of coastal seaside and then large Mondi owned plantations to the south end of the town and a big fish farm on the north end. It's a beautiful, a beautiful town and there's still a lot of natural space, which is wonderful. Um, and these birds have definitely thrived there because of it. Um, but one of the things we knew about going to Mtanzini was that A, it's a good Southern Bandit Snake Eagle hotspot. Um, Hugh Chittenden, who's the author of the Roberts Field Guides, um, is, is a resident in Mtanzini and does a lot of monitoring of the birds. So he could give us really good intel as to where we were likely to find a bird. When you sort of set up these projects, you one of the biggest things is how are we actually going to get hold of this bird to put the tracking device on it. So it's really important that we get accurate gen as to where the birds are being frequently seen. And there's definitely a little stroke of luck on the day as to whether you're going to going to find them or not. Um, but we're very lucky. We've got a great a great team who come together. Um, Craig Natris, who's our ringer. Uh, we use Junior Gabela, who's one of the community guides from BirdLife South Africa and an absolute eagle-eyed spotter when it comes to trying to find these birds. Um, I really think Junior is one of the most amazing people just in terms of being able to pick up on birds in the environments around him. Um, we have a vet with us, Dr. Jess Briner, who does some amazing um, veterinary work with us on the day and keeps the birds healthy and checks on their heart rates while we're working with them. And then Carl Walker, who was our raptor and large terrestrial bird project manager and sort of organized all the, all the logistics um, and getting, getting us down there and booking accommodation and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, the team, team heads down, you've got to get set up and then the hard work starts trying to find these birds. But uh, yeah, it's a lot of prep goes into it on the day. But if you plan well and you execute well, you always end up with a good result. And then what do you hope to achieve through the project? So once we start getting these tracking data, what we can start to see is um, space use from the birds. So we can start understanding territory sizes, which helps us when it comes to things like trying to estimate the population. So at the moment, from what we're seeing with our, our territory data, and it's right in the middle of Southern Bandit Snake Eagle breeding season right now, the birds are quite well established in their territories. 
Um, originally, the sort of estimate was that birds have a, about three kilometer squared home range. Um, and that's sort of what you can estimate as a, a territory being held by a pair. With the tracking data, we're able to get much more fine scale space use from the birds. So we can start to calculate how much foraging area they need. Where are they foraging? Are they spending more time in the suburbs? Are they spending more time in the coastal sort of river section? Where are they going? What do they need on a day-to-day -day basis in order to be able to survive? And once we know that kind of information, when we start working with landowners and land managers and trying to influence the way they're managing their properties, we can do it in a way that will ultimately benefit these birds in the long run. And then how much we know about the breeding habits of the sun and banded snake eagle? Yeah, so not a whole lot. As I said, there's only been a handful of nests ever found in, in southern Africa, and um, the majority of which were actually found in Zimbabwe, not in South Africa. Um, so what we're hoping is that through these tracking devices, we might be able to try and locate a nest locality. Um, once we can get close to that, we can start looking at the responsibilities of the different birds. Um, is the female doing all the incubating? Does the male get involved? Um, how often is he bringing food back to the nest for her? Is she going out and hunting? Um, during incubation, all little um, aspects like that to try and understand a little bit more about the life cycle of these birds. Um, but as it stands right now, we, we don't know a whole lot about them um, other than a few anecdotal observations and Hugh Chittenden's great work monitoring that nest um, near Krambonambi. I can imagine putting a, a tracking device on a raptor isn't that easy. I mean, um, raptors have talons and then it's like you said, it's not a, it's a, it looks like quite a strong little bird. So, you know, how does this, how did the day practically go? You know, how did it go from, you know, there's all the planning that goes into place and you can have all these great plans, but then you've actually got to put the tracking device on the snake eagle. How did, how did that whole day, how did the day look? Yeah, so uh, I must say I was extremely nervous that first morning when we set out. I, I wasn't convinced that we were actually going to be successful despite all of our planning, um, but we gave it our best shot. We headed out in two different vehicles to go and canvas different areas. And uh, luckily I was on board the vehicle that managed to spot a pair of birds. Um, and as we sort of were about to drive into a huge puddle, Junior with his eagle eyes managed to pick them up. And so we reversed back slowly. Um, set out the trap and within 30 seconds of us deploying the trap the bird was down and onto it and we managed to run out and grab it and uh, yeah all of my fears were allayed with a lot of adrenaline and uh, then the hard work starts so now we've got to start processing the bird so we take all of the biometric measurements that we need to do heads wings weight and the whole time as you say watching out for those talons and the beaks they are rather feisty in hand so you definitely got to Got to make sure that you're keeping digits clear of those very sharp appendages. But uh, we've got a great team and Craig Natris, um, as our ringer, is really good at, at keeping everybody in line and doing what they need to do. So while I hold the bird for Craig, he takes all of the measurements and um, we get the weight in and then we've got to start fitting the device. So we use a very small little um, Milsar tracking device. It's solar charged and works off of the cellular tower network. Um, and we've got a harness that we attach to the bird exactly like a, a sort of school backpack for a toddler. Um, we strap it over the bird's body, making sure to leave lots of space for wing movement. Um, and it really fits in nicely under the feathers. It's very, very comfortable for the birds once they've preened it in. And the nice thing about Teflon is it really molds to, the, to whatever it's on. So it molds really nicely to the bird's body and with a little device on their back, we can then start getting pings from them. So 
we work on the bird, it, it takes about half an hour to get the whole process done. And right at the end, um, Dr. Jess Briner comes in and takes a wing blood sample so that we can do some genetic work on the birds um, and also do a DNA test. Um, so sexually, uh, southern matted snake eagles are not sexually dimorphic completely. There, there is some evidence that you can tell males and females apart, um, but it's not 100% certain. And so we take little blood samples so that we can send it off for genetic testing and also to get the sex of the bird at a later stage. And it's a very good thing we did because initially we thought that we'd caught two females and it turned out that the second bird that we'd caught was actually a male, not a female. So it's very useful that we can take those blood samples and, and have, have a little bit more in-depth look at the birds themselves and their, their sort of genetic makeup. Once that's all done, we take a few photos, we do um, full wing shots on the front and the back to help us score the molt of the wings. So that's the way the feathers are um, renewed along the wings. And we take a few photos just for sort of um, record keeping so that we know exactly what the birds look like. And then it's time to let them go. So we, we let the bird sort of gently stand up on the floor and we don't do these crazy um, throwing up releases. We've obviously been working on the bird for about half an hour. It's probably feeling a little stiff and stressed. So we just put the bird down quietly on the floor, step backwards, and it normally then takes off and heads off into the forest to go and preen and sort of process what's just happened to it. And I don't think I mentioned that we also put on a saffron as well. So we fit it with a little metal um, saffron band. And the two birds that we have tracked, we put a ring on the right leg for one of them and a ring on the left leg for the other one. So if you are in Imtanzini and you manage to snap a photograph of one of the birds, um, we'll be able to tell you exactly which individual that was based on the ring um, leg position. So that's pretty much how, how it goes down. It's a lot of adrenaline and you really got to stay calm and get the job done, but absolutely incredible to stare down into the eyes of this amazing raptor. They, they really are incredible birds to be that close to. Yeah, I can imagine that would be the only kind of thing that would some people might be a bit complacent about or not or be a little bit against it is is that discomfort factor. But you know, we've spoken about the fact that there's no discomfort to the bird, which is quite amazing. How how long does the device um, last? What's the durability of the device? Yeah, it's it's tricky to say. Some devices can last for five years. Some devices last for one year. Um, obviously, with these birds being forest birds. Um, it, they don't spend as much time out in the sun as say a secretary bird would. So our secretary bird trackers last for a really long time because those batteries stay nice and full. With our southern banders, they're obviously in the shade a lot. So the batteries take quite a hammering and we'll have to wait and see as to how long uh, they actually do last. But I reckon we'll probably get at least a year or two's worth of data out of them and we can see how they, how they do. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not an exact science in terms of lifespan of devices. <laughs> And then are you looking to track any other um, Southern Banner snake eels going forward? Yes, absolutely. So we are in the process of fundraising to buy two more devices. And um, hopefully as soon as we have sorted that out, we can come back down and put another two devices on birds. Um, we've got ethics clearance for the project to track four birds in total. Obviously, we know how few there are in South Africa. So the ethics committee decided that um, tracking four birds initially is probably the safest number that we'd be willing to to risk putting devices onto so yeah for for now plans to do two more birds in the upcoming year yeah i'd be really great to come to a little youtube video with you guys and just show you know show people what it's all about because it's an amazing amazing project you know you spoke now about raising money for another two trackers what sort of costs are involved in this and how how are the costs covered 
For sure. So unfortunately, the devices are quite expensive. On average, we're looking at about 35,000 Rand per device. Um, so they are pricey. Luckily, we get funding from a, a range of different um, sponsors and very generous individuals. So at the moment, our project is being funded by the Eskom Angula Partnership, as well as the Indian Ocean Export Company. And we've received generous donations from BirdLife Port Natal and the Ridge School in Johannesburg as well. Um, so through all of these little bits of um, money coming into the project, it helps us build up to our targets to be able to buy the tracking devices and get down and actually deploy them. So it is an expensive uh, undertaking, but the, va the value in the data that we can collect from this type of work is priceless in my opinion. So it's worth every penny. Well, I know with BirdLife Port Natal, it's my local club, we, they do an annual calendar. And I know a lot of the, the money they gave last year towards um, this, this project was from the calendar sales. So um, if you're looking for a BirdLife Port Natal calendar, you can just, and I'll maybe pop a link in the bottom. And it's, it's just a simple way that anyone can possibly give towards this project and other projects going forward. But, you know, you spoke about how clubs and you know, different pl places have got involved. So how can someone listening to this, is there, how can they get involved in supporting this project? Yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously you, you can donate towards the project if you feel so inclined, but often people and given the COVID situation are not looking to get financially involved, but there's many other ways that you can support the project. And particularly when it comes to sightings of the birds. So any sighting of a Southern banded snake eagle is valuable. Um, if you are using the Bird Lasser app, which I know is one of your sponsors on this podcast, that um, app has a cause for threatened bird species linked to BirdLife South Africa. If you log your Southern, site, your Southern Banded sighting on that app, that data will come back to BirdLife and that helps us keep track of where birds are still being seen. You can also email through a sighting to me. My email, I'm sure Adam can put in the, the show notes, but it's just melissa.ycross at birdlife.org.za. And then what we're hoping to get going next year is to try and put together an annual Zululand Snake Eagle Big Day, where we'll get teams all over their distribution in South Africa to try and go out and locate their Southern Bandits in a morning so that we can get a, a sort of snapshot of exactly which birds are where, and in doing so, start to try and get a much better handle on this sort of population estimate that we're trying to figure out. So keep tabs on the BirdLife South Africa pages. I'm sure we'll make a lot of noise about the Zululand Snake Eagle Big Day as we get closer to it next year. Um, we'll still need to do a bit of planning for that, but it'll be wonderful to have as many people as possible joining us to cover the whole range of where we think these birds still are and to get those sightings in and help us count them. But yeah, those are probably the easiest ways for, for people to get involved for now. And I think obviously to encourage people who are listening to the show to, to, to take up membership, um, become members of BirdLife South Africa. It's one way you can support and give towards these projects. Um, I think you're listening from wherever in the world, you know, join um, BirdLife South Africa and you really are contributing to, contributing to these great causes. So Melissa, it's been great having you on the show again. I really appreciate you giving up your time. And we're looking forward to, you know, maybe having a bit of a, having a, a future chat about something else, some other projects. You're always doing some really cool projects, but I really appreciate your time and giving up your time to be on the show. Absolutely, Adam. Thanks for the opportunity and all the exposure. It's always great to be back here. Keep up the great work on your side too. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books to help get all the best birding resources into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Bird Enough project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link in either the comment section of this podcast or in our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. 
be sure to head over to our website www.theburninglife.com and check out all the exciting resources that we have on our website including our exciting forum section to connect you with the world of birding, birders and exciting birds out there. Do not forget to follow The Birding Life on Instagram and Facebook. We really appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Birdlasser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a laugh list while playing your part in social conservation. As well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.